I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, 2017. Coming up, an interview with Mike Shanahan, author of God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. The title pretty much says it all. It's a fascinating book about the biology of an amazing plant group, the figs, and their long history with us humans. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you've listened to this program much during the past year, you've heard a lot about our microbiome, which provides many amazing services for us. But you've probably never thought about insects having a microbiome. But it turns out that, just as in us humans, the microbiome is really important in insects. Researchers from Yale and the University of Texas collaborated on this work, which involved honeybees, a species which is extremely important in modern agriculture due to their role as pollinators. Immature bees were raised individually in sterile conditions, which precluded transfer of gut bacteria from their nestmates. When the experimental bees became adults, some were fed gut contents from normally reared bees, and others remained lacking a microbiome. Compared with bees that lacked gut microbes, those with bacteria made almost 30 times as much of an antimicrobial protein that protects against invading pathogens. Interestingly, the gut microbiome did not produce the antibacterial protein directly, but caused the bee to turn on genes that produced it. And this protein doesn't seem to bother the gut bacteria. The bees with gut bacteria had higher survival rates when infected with disease-causing bacteria. This work was published last week in the journal Royal Society for Open Science. From Colorado west to California, snowpack provides the water for 80% of people's crops and drinking water. So, it's important to know how much snow is out there and how to allocate it as it melts. But the dazzling reflective nature of snow makes it hard to measure in the modern way, which means using space satellites that can provide precise data for short and long-term forecasting. The challenge of measuring snowpack from outer space is so challenging, NASA weather scientists report that currently, Worldwide estimates of the water stored in snow may be off by 30 to 50 percent. That's why NASA's launching an ambitious project to create a new snow satellite. The first steps start not in satellites, but in airplanes and on snowy mountains. And Colorado is the place that NASA has chosen to test potential sensors for a snow satellite. As a first step in designing a snow satellite, Forest Service scientist Frank McCormick says experts are gathering data from a highly labor-intensive process where scientists actually dig down through the snow. They'll dig a snow pit 
down to bare ground so that they can take very detailed measurements, everything from temperature to water that's in the snow. McCormick says that snow pit data give accurate information about that particular snowpack's water content, but on a global scale, digging snow pits isn't practical. We would need thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sites throughout the world. That's why NASA has launched SnowX. It's a five-year project to design a snow satellite that will accurately measure snowpack everywhere. The project will involve 100 scientists putting their focus on what kinds of sensors do the best job of measuring snowpack in Colorado. As a first step, they're putting the snow sensors they might use someday in a snow satellite on airplanes. As pilots fly over snowy parts of Colorado, SnowX scientists direct 10 kinds of sensors at the snow, including microwave and laser. They're seeking accuracy, even when terrain is uneven or when trees hide snow. As for which sensors work best, SnowX project leader Edward Kim put it this way. Well, that's really hard to say. I mean, if we really knew the answer to that already, we wouldn't need to do this. To fine-tune airborne measurements, the SnowX team will compare them with snow pit data. SnowX scientist Charles Gaitebe says fitting it all together will require complex calculations, but at its heart, the goal is simple. Get the data, look at the data, and you know, say what the data is telling us. There are so many people dependent on, on snow, and given this changing climate, who knows what happens? So if we can get a very good handle how to predict, you know, the changing snow and the changing climate. I think it's going to benefit uh, a lot of people. NASA's SnowX team, which will be based at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, plans to share their data in open access to help people around the world wherever there is snow. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Today's feature has How on Earth's Beth Bennett talking with Dr. Mike Shanahan, a biologist who has a degree in rainforest ecology. He has lived in a national park in Borneo, bred endangered penguins, and investigated illegal bear farms. His writing has appeared in The Economist, Nature, and The Ecologist, and he also was the illustrator for the book Extraordinary Animals, an Encyclopedia of Curious and Unusual Animals. His interests delve into what people think about nature and our place in it. So Beth had a chance to talk with Dr. Shanahan about his new book, Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. So welcome to the show, Mike Shanahan, author of the recently published Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. 
there's just an amazing amount of fascinating history of the relationship between humans and fig trees in here. But because this is a science show, I'll focus on the science. So maybe you could start off, Mike, by talking about the symbiotic relationship that you describe so beautifully between one of the fig tree species. I think it's the sycamore and it's fig wasp. Well, that's right. It's the ficus sycamorus. It's a tree that grows across most of Africa. And in most of Africa, it also has this symbiotic relationship with a wasp. Like, like all fig species, the flowers are not on display for everyone to see, but they're hidden away inside the figs themselves. The figs are a hollow ball, and the pollinators are tiny little wasps that enter the ball and go about their business of laying eggs inside there and also pollinating the flowers. And what's interesting about the figs is that each fig species, and there are at least 750 of them, has its own specific wasp species to pollinate its flowers. And uh, usually it's just one or two wasp species that do this. And what's super interesting about Ficus sycamorus, the sycamore fig, is that in Egypt, the, the pollinator is absent, and it has been absent for a long time and perhaps never was there. And in ancient Egyptian times, this was the fig species that um, helped fuel the, the bodies that built the pyramids, and it um, became a feature of the... Uh, the religion of the region. The pharaohs would go to their to their tombs with dried figs to help them on their journey into the afterlife. And it's all because the farmers there had worked out a way to trick the plant into producing what appeared to be ripe figs, even though they'd never been pollinated. And how did they do that? Did they just plant the branches? Was that a vegetative reproduction? Well, that's the way they, they created the numbers of trees they needed. But uh, the trick was that they somehow worked out that if you gash a fig with a knife or a sharp blade, um, the, the change in the gas contents will trick the fig into thinking that it's, it's ripe and has seeds to disperse, even though there has been no pollination inside its flowers. Oh, so every time the tree produced those unripe figs, the farmers would have to come along and gash them. That's right, yes. And so that mimicked the change that the wasp produces when she crawls down that little tube and claws her way into the immature fig. Well, it more mimics the um, the escape of the next generation of pollinators. Oh, okay. Once they've been breeding, uh, once they've bred and have been developing inside the figs, the, the next generation of males and females emerge and they mate in the fig. And then the males, which have no wings, bite a, a tunnel out to the, to the external surface, which allows the females, which now have pollen, to, uh, to escape the fig and then fly off and find another fig in which to lay their own eggs. So that's a really amazing life history, that there's that kind of cooperation between the males who will die in the fig. And I always loved telling this story to my biology students. I'd bring fig newtons and everyone would eat a fig cookie. And then I'd tell them how very likely there were wasp parts in those figs. I don't think that the cookie companies can really get rid of all of them. Well, lots of the, the figs that we eat, the species we eat is called Ficus carica. That's the cultivated fig. And many of the varieties we eat don't actually need to be pollinated. So it's not always true that you're eating um, the mummified remains of wasps mm. when you have your figs. Oh, shucks. There goes my story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good horror story. Though. Yeah. So how, does, how is carica pollinated in the agricultural system then? Well, it doesn't need to be pollinated in some varieties. It can produce figs that uh, 
develop in a way that is uh, that is that are nutritionally beneficial to us without having had a pollinator go near them. Oh, okay, okay. So, well, let's just go back to the wasp story for those fig species that do require pollination, because there's so many amazing adaptations. This is such an incredible story of coevolution. Um, like, for instance, I just loved how the females have uh, those little pollen. They're like what I think of as the the pollen baskets that bees have, but they have a little place on their chest. I think it is where they pack the pollen in. And then it gets rubbed off when they go into the next fig. Yes, yeah, some some of the wasps are what we call passive pollinators, and so when they emerge as the next generation of females from the, within the fig, they just happen to get dusted with pollen, and then they go off to their new fig, lay their eggs, and they just happen to sprinkle pollen as they go. Um, but the active pollinators are much more interesting, and in those species, the the males will chop down the uh, the male pollen-bearing flowers within the fig inside this dark hollow and the females will actively scoop up pollen and pocket it, uh, pop it into these pockets on their, their thorax of the animal and these are called pollen pockets and when they move to the fig that they eventually will be laying their eggs in they then actively pollinate the, um, the flowers that they find there so it's very interesting to see that they, they don't just do this by accident some of these species are really uh, very well adapted to making sure that the pollen is transmitted Right. And another really amazing aspect of the coevolution between the tree and the wasp is the chemical signals that the tree releases to direct the wasp to find that particular species. Yes, the figs can live at very low densities in a landscape. And um, this is one thing that they that benefits them. The figs, fig trees can persist even though they are very far apart. Most plants are limited by the distance that their pollen can travel. But the fig wasps, being very tiny, uh, can fly long distances. They can fly tens of kilometers, or rather be carried by the wind, tens of kilometers in their short lives. And the, what they're looking for is they're in the air is a scent, and it's a, it's a chemical signal that is sent out by fig trees of the right species for them, and they can detect this scent, and once they do, they can move towards it just by following the concentration. And so this low density of trees in their natural habitat, that's kind of a problem for the fig species these days, isn't it, as tropical rainforests are being cut down? Well, it's, it's not a problem for the fig species because they are capable of persisting at low densities. It's a bit of a problem for the things that eat figs when the figs start disappearing because the strangler figs, especially these really big trees that you find in Africa and Asia and Latin America, they can produce up to a million figs at a time and they can do this more than once a year. And they do this throughout the year as well across a population. And this means that in a typical forest, you will find figs all year round. And it's like a food pump, really, that the, the figs are providing. They are providing a, a constant level of food for birds, bats, monkeys, and other animals. And so when big fig trees disappear, that spells problems for the animals that eat those figs, but it also spells problems for the other trees and other plants that those animals disperse the seeds of. Right. And you document that in your book. And it's another one of those really sad stories of rainforests. But I also wanted to talk about uh, some of the reasons that you have for being optimistic. I love it that, you know, in your book, you don't just talk about how 
it's all going to hell in these rainforests that are being cut down, but there's groups that are actively working to restore figs. So can you talk a little bit about that? That's a wonderful part of your book. Well, one thing that scientists have realized is that when you have figs in an area, they attract animals and those animals attract the seeds of other species. Uh, so they, they carry the seeds of other species with them rather. And, and so people around the world have been planting fig trees in the hope of restoring natural habitat in areas that have been logged or have been mined. And the results are quite impressive so far. There are people in Thailand who've been doing this for, for quite some time. And what they're seeing is that by planting fig trees, they can attract lots of other plants and animals to come back to an area. This is also happening in Costa Rica, in South Africa, in Rwanda, three different kinds of approaches, but it's very interesting. If you just joined us, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We have been listening to Beth Bennett interview Dr. Mike Shanahan, author of God's Wasps and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. They have been talking about the coevolution of wasps and figs and interactions of fig trees with other plant and animal species. Let's continue with the interview. So are people planting figs uh, more densely, perhaps, than they would naturally occur almost as, or do they, do they plant, plant them in a dispersed state and that allows other species to come in? It's a little bit of both. Uh, there are different, many different kinds of fig, fig species. Some of them are these huge trees like strangler figs, and some of them are very small trees that tend to grow at the edge of forests or in light gaps where a tree falls down. So they're more of a pioneer type species that likes to grow where there's lots of light. And so in Thailand, they've been planting a lot of these pioneer species that are very good at uh, quickly colonizing areas that are disturbed. And they naturally grow at quite a high density in those kind of little gaps where, where you'll find um, lots of light. In Costa Rica, they're doing a, taking a different approach than they're lopping large branches four meters long from existing trees and then sticking them in the ground to see, do they take root? How quickly will they produce figs? And will they indeed produce uh, enough figs to start attracting the animals that disperse other seeds? And they've also found that within a year or so, those transplanted instant trees are producing figs and attracting animals. So it's kind of a way to jumpstart a reforestation project in these rainforests that have been denuded of trees. Exactly. It gives nature a bit of a helping hand, and it's a, it's a fast and fairly cost-effective way of doing it. What's, um, what's been done in Thailand is that they've employed uh, villagers in a national park where they're living illegally um, and have cleared parts of the national park. But by employing these villagers to go and plant trees in different areas, they're showing that the villagers can actually be good custodians of that land, um, and it creates jobs and income. And it costs about a dollar per plant to actually plant these trees. And um, that seems fairly cheap to me, but they're now looking at even more cost-effective ways of doing this by using drones that fly out across more, um, more difficult terrain, steep landscapes and, and distant from villages. So they can just fire out lots of seeds with a little hydrating gel to help them get started in life. And that those plants would then grow up naturally with, uh, with very little... Uh, assistance from many people. This was a really cool application of drones. I had never heard of this before uh, for planting, but you also describe another use of drones for identifying different species. 
Well, this is to come. This is in the future. And uh, this is one of the ideas that the, the Thai researchers um, are looking into. The idea would be that they can use drones to go fly through a forest and identify using imaging software different plants, particularly rare plants, so that either people can go and then collect those seeds or that the drones themselves can, can grab fruit and bring them back so that seeds can be gathered and then sent out and planted again. That's a pretty remarkable idea. I think you can probably really appreciate the beauty of that idea, having spent a lot of time wandering around in dense tropical rainforests. Well, kind of, but it's also a bit sad, really, because the you know what I saw <laughs> when I was living in rainforests is that this was happening naturally, and it was birds and bats doing it, and uh, we've reached a point where yeah. um, the yeah. larger seed dispersers are disappearing, and we now have to contemplate using robots to do this for us. Yeah, right. Very bittersweet. Well, as long as we're talking <laughs> about these tree species, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit also about the variety of the species. Like there's those giant strangler figs and then there's smaller ones. And maybe just give a life cycle of a tree. Just go over that because we've all eaten figs and we know how tiny the seeds are. And the idea that some of these trees are so huge and can grow from such a tiny little seed is truly remarkable. Well, the seeds really are tiny. They're so small they can get stuck between your teeth. And um, in fact, Aristotle was way back when assuming that this was the cause of dental cavities, and he was quite right to be thinking <laughs> along those lines. But um, many of the fig species are trees, and when I say a tree, it's the standard sort of, it's a straight pole and it's got some leaves at the top, and that's fairly boring. But many of the figs also produce their, their figs in weird ways, and so you'll have a regular-looking tree, but the figs will be growing straight out of its trunk. Um, and often these are uh, species whose seeds are dispersed by bats. So the small bats don't have to mess around flying amongst the foliage. They can just go straight up to the trunk and grab their figs. And then there are some others that produce figs at ground level, at the base of the trunk or even underground on uh, runners that go through the leaf litter and even bury themselves underground. So they're all pretty weird and strange. Um, there are some others that aren't trees at all. They're creepers and climbers and they they grow from seeds that fall near the base of a big rainforest tree and then they grow up that tree using it for support. And then possibly the more interesting ones are the, the stranglers and what they do is they start in life high in the canopy. So a bird or a bat or a monkey will deposit a seed high up on a tree that's been living already for many, many years. And if that seed falls in the right place, like the, the crook between the, the, the branch and the trunk, it will find enough moisture and maybe even a little soil there that enables it to start out in life. And very quickly, it will send up its first two leaves, but it will also send roots down. And they're what we call aerial roots. And these aerial roots descend down the host tree. And eventually, they start to produce many of these roots, which wrap around and they merge with each other. They break apart and merge again. And they form what looks like a basket work around the host tree. And these are the, these are the, the figs that um, by doing this, they get all of the benefits of light in the canopy very early in their life. But then soon after that, they can tap into the rainforest soil and, and get their, their moisture and nutrients that way. And if enough time passes, they can even kill off this host tree by, by squeezing it too much and uh, the host will die away. And you can have a hollow column inside these strangler figs that you can very easily climb up. It's, uh, it's a very cool experience. 
Yeah, unless there's a big old snake waiting for you up in the top, like you opened the book with that story, which was, to a snake-phobe like me, that was kind of a horrifying story. <laughs> yeah, there should maybe be a warning. <laughs> but, but you're right, snakes do like to live in strangler figs, and some other animals do too, so it's, uh, it's always worth ch- checking up before you go in one. And maybe one final story that you could uh, briefly discuss. I, I love the story of the hornbills, and the, the illustrations in the book are truly stunning of these incredible birds and their, especially what the female does when she is incubating her eggs. Yes, the hornbills are Asian birds that uh, live in the forests and are heavily dependent on, on figs. There are also some in Africa, but the book doesn't talk about those so much. And they, the rhinoceros hornbill lives in a very, very dense forest area with, with lots of big trees. And it likes to find big trees that have got a hole in them so it can go in there and lay its eggs. But once the, the female enters this nesting site, in order to make herself secure and her eggs <coughs> and future hatchlings, she and her partner will seal up the hole so that she's basically locked in. And they, they use a mixture of feces and half-digested figs and mud and other things to create a, a cover over the hole behind which she's hiding. And then she incubates her eggs, and for months after that, the male will come and visit and feed her figs through a tiny little crack in the hole that they've made, um, so that all the while she's safe inside from predators and from inclement weather, and he's outside doing a nearly endless uh, relay of visiting giant fig trees so that he can bring back enough food for his family. And this is just one of many fascinating stories in the book, which we are going to have to leave now, but I will provide a link to the book on the website. Thank you so much, Mike, for talking to us today. That was Beth Bennett talking with Dr. Mike Shanahan, author of Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. This is a great natural history read if you are interested in figs, fig wasps, or ecology. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bartell and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sting. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.